As I said last night, my aim this morning is just to wrap up a few thoughts from the session so far and then allow you some space to share what you'd like to share in the wake of the whole weekend's experience and anything else that comes to mind. But I simply wanted to draw things together a little bit in this very brief last bit of reflection by anchoring it in one particular way in which the tradition has worked with the idea of the body and its destiny. And that, of course, is to do with the story in the Gospels of the transfiguration of Jesus. This has, from very early on, been not only a significant element in the Gospel narrative, but also a kind of paradigm that Christians use to reflect on what is possible, improbably possible, for the human body. We're told that Jesus and the three disciples closest to him go up to a mountaintop. And as Jesus prays in their presence, he is transfigured. Light streams from his face and his garments. And there's a cloud surrounding the little group. Interestingly, this has one or two parallels in Jewish literature. We read, for example, in the Talmud of an incident when, in a little community, the roof of a building was on fire. And when the neighbors rushed in, they saw there the rabbi and his disciples talking together about the first chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel. And they were talking so intensely that the whole place was filled with fire. So I like to think of Jesus and the disciples on the top of traditionally Mount Tabor Possibly not, as in some of the the paintings, perched on the rocks, but tucked away in a cave somewhere near the summit. And as they sit and reflect together on the history of Israel, as Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, as it were, come more and more into the space they share, that space they share becomes dense, thick with light and at the heart of it all the face of Jesus interpreting in the scriptures those things which are about himself remember the account of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples as Jesus talks about the scriptures the hearts of the disciples are inflamed within them Perhaps we learn more about what the transfiguration might really have been if we think of that Jewish story, the rabbi and his disciples, so immersed in the living word of God's revelation that light thickens around them. And I use that image partly because one of the most vivid modern descriptions of something like that is the very famous account 
of St. Seraphim of Sarov, which so many of you will know. St. Seraphim, who died in 1833, and whose life and witness made an immense impact on 19th century Russia. Forgive me if this is so familiar that you know it by heart, but it's worth touching on. Nikolai Matavilov, a local landowner who had been cured by St. Seraphim from various diseases, is visiting St. Seraphim in the forest on a snowy day. And he asks St. Seraphim, what is the purpose of the Christian life? Seraphim replies, it is to acquire the Holy Spirit. What does that mean, says Matavilov. Seraphim says, why aren't you looking at me? I can't, says Matavilov. Your face is shining so brightly. And Matavilov goes on and says, imagine that you are looking at the sun in midday splendor in the middle of a snowy wood. The snow keeps falling all around. And in the heart of your field of vision is the face of the person you're with. The lips move, the sounds come, but the rest is a kind of blur of luminosity as the snow falls. It's, it's an unforgettable picture, so vivid, that to me it's, it's unthinkable that it's not drawn from life. And then Seraphim says a very strange thing to Matevilov, and he says, I, I know why you can't look at me, but you look just the same to me. <laughs> because we stand together here in the Holy Spirit. And then, from an utterly, utterly different setting, from utterly different people, much more recently. Last year, in Rome, we celebrated, I hope it's the privileged leader of the Anglican delegation on the occasion, the canonization of St. Oscar Romero, Archbishop of Salvador. A wonderful, wonderful event, celebrating one of the greatest figures of the 20th century church. This year there was published a book with the rather unusual title, What You Have Heard is True. It's a book by an American poet, Carolyn Forche. F-O-R-C-H-E. Carolyn, as a very young woman, went to work for a few months in El Salvador when Romero was archbishop. Her poetry was deeply marked by this experience in Salvador, and she wrote some truly harrowing poems about the unspeakable cruelty and oppression that was inflicted on people there. But during her time in Salvador, as a rather lapsed Catholic, she was introduced to Archbishop Romero. And she describes something remarkably like what Matavilov describes with St. Seraphim. She's sitting in the, the kitchen of a little convent with Archbishop Romero drinking a cup of coffee on the other side of the table. And she says, I could not fail to see the silvery light that seemed to be surrounding this man and streaming from the tips of his fingers. I knew I was in the presence of something I couldn't cope with or conceptualize. 
that experience in Salvador brought Caroline Forche back into the practice of faith, and she's been through her long career as a writer and commentator and poet, someone with a profound spiritual sensitivity. And I had the joy of meeting her for the first time at a Benedictine monastery in Ireland a few years ago. So the transfiguration is not just a story in the Bible. It seems to be telling us something about what happens in certain states of intense presence. The person who is intensely present to God and intensely present to those that they are with is a person from whom radiance visibly flows. I won't insult your intelligence with theories about what's going on. But that seems to be the bottom line. In certain moments of presence, of communion, should we say, the life-giving light that is hidden in all things comes tangibly, visibly nearer the surface. And perhaps that's how we should think of it, that we live in a world where the life-giving radiance of God is everywhere. And our problem is we can't see it. In St. Augustine's wonderful image, we are so swollen with our pride and self-concern that we can't actually get our eyes open. It's a vivid picture of a sort of massively puffed-up face where the cheeks have swollen so much you, can't, you just can't see beyond the slits of your eyes. And our healing is whatever it is that drains away that swollen self-regard and steadily opens our eyes more fully to what is simply there. We come back again and again, don't we, to this um, tantalizingly simple phrase, what's there? What's there? The real. And the real, if all these people are to be trusted, which I think they are, the real is the radiance. The real is the radiance. An English Jesuit of the 20th century, um, very complicated character indeed, and a very great scholar in his way, Father Martindale, once described talking to a stoker on board a liner, asking, did he pray? Did he have any sense of, uh, of God? And to his great surprise, the stoker told Father Martindale that when he looked at a blade of grass, he said, you look at all the bits. You look at the flesh of it. And he said, in between it shines. In between it shines. So that steady pressure of life-giving light, the real, the radiant, in the whole world we inhabit is there just below the surface and in moments when we're very blessed in between it shines but so do we and back to yesterday's observations 
the fragility and the mortality, the failing, stumbling, imperfect character of our reality floats upon that steady stream of life-giving light. And perhaps that image takes you back again to the leaf on the water, that sheer touch of the real. Now, these are exceptional experiences, exceptional stories about exceptional people. And they may seem a very long way from the reality most of us inhabit. And yet, I suspect most of us will have just a glimpse of the in-between-it-shines moment in the face of somebody very precious to us, in a moment of intense awareness of the place where we are. Sometimes, as I implied yesterday, in a moment of deep crisis or trauma, sometimes in the presence of the dying or the dead. But what matters is not whether we can, God forbid, clock up an experience. What matters is that we move on, growing in trust day by day, that that is the world we're in and the body we are resting on that steady stream of divine radiance. And just once in a while, miraculously, the radiance comes through. I quoted to you from Martin Laird's lovely description of light underwater. And I mention these images and these stories not just for anecdotal interest, but because we constantly need, I think, to have our imaginations just renewed and prompted a bit to recognize the extraordinariness of the ordinary world we're in. And as we meditate and seek to open ourselves to that reality, it's because the world is like that. Meditation is not something that goes on in our minds. Nor is it even something that goes on in our bodies. It's something that goes on. That's to say it's the communion that opens up the possibility of that mutual reflection of the radiance at the heart of things. So that, finally, what the body knows is the real. The real, for us as Christian believers, is ultimately the radiant, the streaming out of divine life and divine light. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit From that comes everything. To that, everything looks and flows 
In that, everything converges. And within that reality, we sit and wait and breathe in trust. <laughs>